it's I love seeing where people are. That's really a treat. I was looking scrolling down there and I've and of course what happens to me is as soon as I see the name of a place I think about having been there and then I want to talk about that and then I get completely distracted. So uh, I'll skip all that. Uh, but I see a lot of my past history there. <laughs> State college. I don't even want to talk about it. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So so this is our monthly class. Uh, and uh, the other Fridays uh, of the month uh, are on my own Zoom uh, account. So you can find that on my website, kevingriffin.net. Um and I was thinking, we're going to meditate in a minute, but I'm just going to say a couple things just for fun. Um, when, when Ileana, when you were talking about, you know, the unseated land and the, uh, the Miwok people, uh, the, I was just heard a great interview on, on KQED yesterday about a book called Deep Oakland. And it's about like the geological history of the Bay. So anybody who lives in the Bay Area, you might find this interesting if you like that sort of thing. It's like, you know, what the Bay was like when during the last ice age, when there was no water in the Bay and it was completely dried up and because uh, the sea level was 400 feet lower. Anyway, I, I love that kind of uh, archaeology. Is that archaeology? No, it's not. Geology. I don't know. I'm not good with science. Anyway, Um you know, a deep time, really, and and the author was also talking about the Ohlone people, who's and that's the land that I that I'm on over uh, in uh, in Berkeley, in the East Bay. Berkeley borders on uh, Oakland. For those who don't know the local geography, so we're going to sit for a little while. I'm going to talk uh, about, um, you know, I, I think I'm just going to make a, really a simple kind of talk tonight about integrating mindfulness into recovery and kind of with the 12 steps. Um, we'll see how that comes out. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll lead a meditation now for a little while. Uh, yeah. Oh, chat is back to host only. Okay. So thank you, Ileana, for letting us know. So that's, that's so it doesn't get too noisy in the chat room or whatever we call that space on the side of our screen. So mindfulness meditation, we generally try to practice in a, a seated posture. You know, the, you can be in a chair or on a cushion on the floor with your legs crossed. However, you are best able to Hold your body. Do we want to be able to sit in a way that we can stay alert so we don't want to be actually too comfortable? You know, if you lie down uh, to meditate, there is a tendency to fall asleep. So, um, so we're sitting generally upright. And, and, and that doesn't, uh, uh, I don't mean to suggest that if you, um, if you have some physical limitations that you can't just meditate lying down, you certainly can. I recommend that uh, you keep your eyes open if that's the case. And so settling into the posture that works for you and 
And you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze if you prefer to stay a little more visually connected to the world. So we we start by turning toward the the body, turning inward to our sensed experience of the body, of being in a body. Just take some time to move your attention through the body. You can start with your head or your toes, whichever direction you like to go. Just kind of touching on the different areas of sensation. So I usually start by relaxing my jaw, the face, and moving down and feeling the shoulders, and letting the chest and belly be open, sense of spaciousness where the breath can move easily through the body. And just feeling the weight of the body. On your chair or cushion. Feeling the arms and hands. The legs and feet. So very simple exercise this scanning of the sensations. But in some way it's it's actually looking at something essential in our experience. It's really feeling what it feels like to be alive in a body. We often tend to live just from the neck up, as though our whole life was in our mind. So it's helpful to to remember that there is this body that's alive and full of energy, has its own intelligence. This body that knows how to breathe and how to move blood, knows how to take oxygen out of the air, put it into the bloodstream, how it knows how to feed its own cells, knows how to digest food. It 
without this intelligence, we wouldn't be alive. We think of it as our own body or my body. And yet it does all this without any will or intention on our own part. We're just long for the ride. Our consciousness is along for the ride. Now you can begin to focus on the breath if you like. The breath is a useful object for cultivating concentration or clarity. Pay attention to the sensations, either at the nostrils, the movement, the touch of air coming in and out, or, or we can use the belly awareness of the movement of the breath in the belly. These are the traditional points suggested as places in the body to focus on the breath. We'll see what's most helpful for you, whether you like to follow the breath at the nostrils or at the belly, and then see if you can just rest the attention at that point, watching the movement and touch. natural for the mind to wander. So when we try to pay attention to the breath, we often find it slipping away, at least at first. So our practice is to come back. We don't need to judge ourselves. Keep a scorecard. This is a, a kind of training of the mind. And naturally enough, it requires us to be patient and kind, gentle with ourselves. We're trying to cultivate qualities of clarity and
kindness, compassion. We're not in a competition. Doesn't help to try to force something. So this simple practice can be quite revealing. First, we often see, or many people see that they might have less control of their minds than they do. It doesn't respond to our attempt to stay with the breath or to stay present. Just the mind goes off on its own. In the 12-step language, we realize our powerlessness over the mind. We might also see the, the ways we talk to ourselves. We start to see the thoughts that come up. can be a source of insight, particularly if we have judgmental or self-critical thoughts. And our primary Practice is to let go. You don't have to analyze or judge, figure out why we're thinking the way we are. We simply let go and come back, training the mind to be in the present moment.
Where is your attention right now? If it's wandering, just gently come back to the breath, reconnect with the body, the sensations of breathing. If we're patient, there can be a natural settling that happens over time. Not something we can push or force, but the breath itself can have a calming effect on the body and on the mind. If there are very persistent thoughts, see if you can drop down into awareness of just a, a feeling behind that, those thoughts. You might call it an energy or an emotion. Again, not trying to analyze or find causes exactly, but just feeling what those thoughts arouse in you and what perhaps is behind them. And just breathing with those feelings, if you can sense that, the subtle form of attention feeling emotions or moods in the body.
as you continue to sit, notice what comes up. And when we try to meditate for a longer period than we're used to, we might encounter resistance just to see what is that? How does that feel? It can be so interesting, really. Why there's resistance to just sitting. You might find that it's just difficult to be with your own mind. So this practice asks us, challenges us to become comfortable with our own mind. So this is why kindness, a sense of compassion for ourselves, a sense of non-demanding, not expecting something, all of this kind of supports just sitting with our own experience, letting it be there, letting it, whatever is there show up and breathe with that. Watch it come and watch it go. Don't be afraid. So the breath and the quality of mindfulness become our refuge, our protectors, holding us in this present moment, keeping us calm, seeing that we are, we're okay. We don't have to let our minds brighten us or get in the way of just being present.
All right. Um, yeah, I, I guess I I usually don't talk in this, like the second half of the sit, but I you know it seems I see some names and you know, some faces of people I I don't know, and um, so I don't know how uh, used to you meditating everyone here is and. Uh, I think it can be hard to be just left out there in the void, in the silence, like, what's going on? What am I supposed to do? Um, so, so again, welcome. Um, appreciate Spirit Rock uh, continuing this court class, even though uh, we haven't been able to do it live for a few years. I've been offering this uh, once a month. Uh, class on Buddhism and recovery, Dharma and recovery, <laughs> more than a dozen years now. Well, I am taking a cough drop from my somewhat raw throat. So, you know, I was thinking about um, just about mindfulness and just 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 to start. Let me just talk a little bit about this. This. Um, this very simple idea. It's seemingly simple idea, right? Oh, just just be present, okay? You know, and then mindful, and we sort of think, okay, that's, I'll just be aware. But then as we start to work with that idea, you know, the first thing we're asked to do, and, and we look at this, sort of the Buddhist teachings, and there's several different areas of our experience, the Buddha points to, okay, be aware of your body, and and that right away can can bring up a lot. Uh, it, it's not that simple an idea. First of all, you know, f- many of us aren't really that in touch with our body, and certainly um, this is a problem for addicts <laughs> that tend to be like trying to get away from their body or you know, kind of alter everything. But but just for the for anybody, just to all of a sudden like, okay, pay attention to your body. It's not something we we just usually pay attention to our body when our body makes some demand on us, right? When it it when it gets hungry or tired or you know gets hurt, that oh wait, I need to take care of my knee, you know, I just banged it, or otherwise I don't pay attention to my knee, you know. Um, and so the idea of I'm just going to sit here and feel my body for no particular reason. Uh, I, th- I think, first of all, that can be tricky because we might not even sort of know how to do it. Like, And and it's very common that people find that they actually f- don't quite uh, know how to feel their body. And for people who have experienced trauma, there can be the whole dissociating and, and, and it's not even safe, doesn't feel emotionally safe to feel your body. So all of a sudden, this simple instruction, oh, just be aware of your body, can all can become, you know, a challenge. Um, I find it, you know, after doing this practice for a few decades, I find it really interesting. I've gotten to the point where I I just find it very interesting how alive the body is. And to just tune in to it and and first of all to see that when i say the body 
I'm not even saying my body, but just this body, it's not one thing. When I start to bring mindfulness to the body, it's just all this different stuff. So then it's like, well, which am I supposed to pay attention to? Which is, you know, fine. You And that's, we, you know, we do suggest, well, work with the breath. You can, you know, you, but there are different strategies. The, the scanning that I just briefly described at the beginning can be done as an intensive practice very slowly, moving the attention through each area of the body. And that can be very revealing. And we find that certain parts of the body are very sensitive and other parts of the body might be hard to even get in touch with. So right away, there's this, I, I guess, I don't know if I want to call it complicated, but this this simple practice starts to be less simple. And then we're asked to tune into something more subtle, which the which we translate as feeling tone, just sort of how are you feeling? And and I talk about this a lot about breathing with and and being present with feelings. And I often hear from people that they don't know what I'm talking about. Like, what do you mean? And, and you know, because the Buddha is talking about something that isn't quite ordinary in our language. We have the idea of of feelings as emotions, but but when the Buddha says there, there's a, the term that he uses, Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, is not like something that has exactly a single English translation. So it's actually more primal than an emotion. Emotion is more of a, a formed uh, f- feeling that centers around, it has a particular uh you know, meaning to it, that we at least give it meaning, right? I am feeling angry. I am sad. I am happy, you know, but this feeling tone is more subtle than that. It doesn't really have a a label like that. And the, the Buddha actually just says there's three feeling tones you can have, and they're just pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but, but when you, when you combine the feeling, the body, with this idea of a oh, feeling tone, what you f- find is that you start to see that the body itself is just a field of energy uh, as you tune into the subtlety of feeling. And so body and feeling tone are not really separate. They're actually uh, blended. Uh, we start to experience them together as this much more amorphous and and energetic space than a solid thing that's here and there's a feeling you know it's much uh, uh more subtle than that and the third area of experience the buddha points to is the, the of mind and mind states and, and again it's not quite like thoughts it's more like what attitude do you have in this moment? How are you viewing your experience right now? What do you think is going on? And this, of course, is where much of our attention becomes occupied because this does manifest as thoughts, and we do, and we do have to check that out. But uh, you know, I mentioned during the during the sit the way we can sort of experience our lives from the neck up, and and when we start to connect our mind into the body and into feeling. We again start to see that this is these are not separate things they're 
they're moving together. When I have a thought, there's a feeling that arises and there may be a sensation with that feeling. When I have a feeling, there's a thought that comes out of that. And so that there's this whole complex, this organism, this feedback loop operating. And at, at this point, we start to realize as we're doing this practice that all this stuff is happening without me really being involved. And as I was talking about how our body functions without our will, we start to see that this whole mind-body system is so deeply conditioned that it kind of runs on without our participation. <laughs> and that mindfulness is, is suggesting maybe you should step in. <laughs> and so mindfulness is kind of a an intervention here. <laughs> And, and it's not that we're going to try to control it because we can't really control it, but we're going to engage our awareness into this system so that everything doesn't isn't running on automatic pilot. So that when thoughts arise, we can see them clearly and understand and even question what they're saying and notice, oh, that feeling that just arose is just a feeling that showed up with that thought. Because very often that thought and that feeling, instead of being questioned or examined, just become our worldview. And they become our motivation. And we start acting on those thoughts and feelings. And before you know it, particularly if you are an addict of some kind, your thoughts and feelings are driving you into these ultimately very self-destructive and unhelpful behaviors, not to mention belief systems or just beliefs. And, and so mindfulness lets us have some clarity, some understanding of what's actually going on. And then allows us to have more choices. And this is one of the lines, you know, we often hear in 12-step meetings, we have choices today. And and what a, you know, that's really helpful <laughs> because the essentially the definition of addiction includes the idea that you're not deciding anything. You're being dictated to by your addiction. So being able to intervene in that, you know, perform this sort of mindful intervention then gives us the chance to actually change the whole flow of our lives, the whole direction of our lives. And it's this then, the, you know, I'll say, that since I'm sort of outlining the, what's called the four foundations of mindfulness, and so there's body, feeling, mind, then the fourth one is is more about insight. And so it, it's awareness on these different levels, body, feeling, mind, allows us to see the world more clearly and then to understand more clearly what's going on and not just be running on these conditioned habits. And so that clarity helps us to then live in tune with the Dharma. So it, that's just sort of a setup for talking then about mindfulness and recovery. And I, and I think it's, it becomes 
kind of you know you you kind of get the idea just by looking at the these elements of mindfulness what i'm what i'm going to say you know you can maybe sort of sense where this goes so but but to take it into the 12 step model the first of the 12 steps is it says we're powerless we're admitted we were powerless over alcohol or drugs or food sex you know relationships that our lives would become unmanageable but that first critical word admitted requires mindfulness we need to see it you know this is the the opposite of denial right denial is when you don't see it or when you refuse to see it but it's it, denial is very much an opposite of of mindfulness and so we realize that in order to really even begin on this path, we have to have some clarity, some mindfulness, and some understanding of what's going on. We're we're seeing actually part of what we're seeing at that starting point is this system, the system of addiction that and and how it operates. Right? That oh, I get triggered. Something sets me off, and a lot of times we don't even know what that is uh, initially, though it's one thing I really encourage people to explore. But we get triggered, and then we start on this behavior, and then we get swept away with it. And it's really once we get triggered that this kind of powerlessness starts. And so, you know, Buddhist teachings say, well, you need to be mindful of those triggers and the what's called right effort the first of the of the four efforts there's always a list in buddhism is to avoid the things that trigger you and so that requires mindfulness because if you don't if you're not aware you're just playing out patterns right habitual patterns so that mindfulness allows you to intervene again maybe another you know word of the evening in this uh pattern in this cycle of addiction and so we have we have to catch it at an early stage the oh there's that thing that sets me off i need to make another choice in this moment you know so You know, it's interesting. I'll just sort of side sidebar this that I mentioned during the the meditation that we also see when we apply mindfulness to our experience that this term powerlessness really fits with our own minds, and that we see that our that the thoughts and feelings that that just come up repeatedly, we don't have some, you know control that we can just step in and make them be different and this is why mindfulness kind of has a partner in kindness and compassion and forgiveness for ourselves because we see like well this stuff comes up i don't want it to come up but it comes anyway right especially when we're very conditioned in in negative or self-destructive places difficult stuff shows up i can be aware of it but just being aware of it can actually make me feel worse 
So I need to be able to say in that moment, it's okay. It's okay to have this feeling. It's okay to have this thought. I, the fact that I don't want it doesn't mean I, I can control it. So I need to be, have this quality of acceptance. So we, that really ties in to the third step of turning our will and our lives over. And it says to the care of God, okay, but how about to the care of mindfulness, to the care of kindness, to the care of love, you know, to, trying to what, and, and the question I like to ask about this step is, what have I been turning my will in my life over to? Well, I've been turning my will in my life over to my addiction and, and more specifically over to my, my own desires, my impulses. Uh, and, and my conditioned reactivity, which has also got a lot of ego and control wrapped up in it. So, okay, that's how things have been moving. And if I'm going to change, then I need to find another, you know, North Star, another thing to orient around. And that, in general, can we can say is the Dharma. But that includes mindfulness. It includes loving kindness. It includes ethical behavior, moral behavior. And and so at this point, you know, the the way I understand the connection between Buddhism and the 12 steps is that we're really trying to align our thoughts and behaviors and speech with the Dharma. And that means we have to study the Dharma, actually. You know, it's not like, oh, you automatically know the next right thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is that sort of expression, just do the next right thing. And I've often been like, well, how do I know what that is? Well, yeah, my my understanding of the next right thing is like the next thing that I want. You know, that's not what I want and what's right or let's say skillful or wise are not always the same thing so so there is this reflective aspect and and you know and and i'm sure all of you have read some dharma and and have some books and you know it's really worth reflecting and thinking about oh what does this mean for me and in this situation what does it mean to turn my will and my life over to the care of God in this situation where I'm in a conflict with my boss, or I should say, and they turn it over to the will of the Dharma? What does it mean in this in this uh, situation with my family? Uh, you know, how do I how do I handle that in a, through this Dharma lens? And and then of course, we, hopefully, we see like, oh well, we always want to start with compassion, kindness, generosity. We want to start with honesty and mindfulness, you know, and so these are like core elements of the, of the Dharma, the core principles that are, that are guidelines. And we can see they're not, they're not any different really than 12 step principles. I would say, uh, I mean, I think that, that having a mindfulness practice some kind of discipline in which you're really you really regularly look at and try to try to stay in tune with your inner life that that really makes this kind of turning it over much 
well, I don't easier isn't quite the right word, but but much more likely to be kind of in harmony because we are such so good at self-deception that if we just kind of go, oh, well, this feels like the right thing without really examining and knowing our inner world clearly, we're very likely to be driven by subtle, at least subtly negative or, or selfish or, uh, you know, uh, grasping impulses. So applying mindfulness and really starting to know that inner world. I mean, this is why, you know, why I really encourage people to to be with their experience when they're meditating. I think there's this this tendency to want our meditation to be something that takes us away. And in a way, we want to be kind of like, oh, I just want to get into a, a nice space. And that's lovely and great. And there's no reason not to do that. However, <laughs> learning to be with the not so nice space, to be with the difficult emotions, or just to be with the rattled, rattling around of the, of the mind. This is really important in terms of applying these principles in our lives to really become familiar with and friendly or not in conflict with this complicated inner world that we each have, not in conflict with these thoughts, these cravings, the resentments. Not, you know, we're not trying to like demonize all that. We we really need to see it, and then we need to be able to hold it with kindness and without reactivity. And that's the acceptance, right? So so really, if you can, I really recommend that with your mindfulness practice that you don't shy away from what's arising, that you breathe with what arises as you meditate, that you see it clearly, and then see if you can let it go. Rather than trying to, oh, mindfulness, my breath, my breath, let's get get that stuff out of here. So just the thought. So that kind of brings me to the the inventory section of the steps. Step four is made searching and fearless moral inventory. And then five, we share it. Which, again, to me, I I feel like I've already been describing that. When When you think about how mindfulness of the mind works you're seeing your inventory in real time you know i mean it's not your past inventory but it's you're seeing your own conditioning your own habits of mind and if we bring real honesty to that again we we understand ourselves and then it's then it gives us the opportunity to change and there's a passage in the Vasudhimaga which is a commentary on the Buddhist teachings from 500 AD common era in that passage it says something like you must know what the you know, kind of know the enemy of the in the mind, or know the the difficult qualities. Know your own anger. Know this the the fears, 
before you can change them. You can't change something that you don't see. So, so the inventory process helps us to see what's there. And then the step six and seven, which is about the letting go and the, you know, and of course it's the language of God, but, but, you know, God, there's nobody that's going to come and rescue you and remove your defects. It's you making different choices in terms of thoughts, words, and deeds, the three forms of karma. So this, this then again, in order to change then in this process, okay, I see th- through this kind of inventory, meditative inventory, you can call it, I can see that the, there are these qualities. And in this moment, okay, this thought, is that true? Is that helpful? No, that's not helpful. Let me <laughs> see if I can get a more honest view of what's going on. Okay, what about this feeling? Is this feeling leading me to... St- to skillful action um and and what do i want to say in this situation another form of karma right i i want to be i want to speak honestly and i want to be kind and useful um and so i need to be aware as i speak i if i just open my mouth personally i tend to get in trouble you know if there's no mindfulness there and then in our actions, you know, the same thing to to start to make actions and take actions that are based on on the Dharma and the skillful actions to be of service, to be, you know, to take care of ourselves, to take care of others, not to be driven by, you know, pleasure seeking or self-seeking. So, you know, I often find myself uh, when I talk about the steps in this way and kind of going through them, that when I get to step seven, I feel like, well, I'm kind of good. <laughs> I know there's more. I mean, there's uh, amends and there's, you know, the, the closing steps. The But but I think that's as, as far as I want to go tonight, just in terms of kind of framing this, this connection and how mindfulness really works in this system. Um, because, because again, going back to kind of my starting point, I think we, we have this term mindfulness now has become such a buzzword in the culture that it can kind of lose meaning. It can lose its, uh, you know, it can just become a superficial term that you just throw off without really understanding what you're talking about and to realize that this is really a a system and a practice that requires requires a certain amount of devotion and and attention and effort um you know when the buddha introduces the idea of mindfulness talks about being ardent one of the uh beautiful words in the text and, and joseph goldstein takes this word and kind of talks about what ardency means. It's like really bringing the heart into your practice, really being engaged, not just, oh, I'm going to practice mindfulness 10 minutes a day, but really kind of having this sense, as I do, of a real love for for mindfulness and what it means and how it can really... uh, 
kind of pervade our lives and can be used in this in this beautiful way to provide our lives. Um, so I, I hope those words are helpful. And, um, and I'd like to just see if anybody wants to, you know, chime in, ask a question or um, make a comment. I think Ileana, you can maybe open up the, the chat if someone would prefer to write a chat a question, but you can, you know, raise your virtual hand if you like. Um, however, you're comfortable. Oh, all right. Great. People jumping right in. Philip, hello. Yeah. Hi, Kevin. Hi. I've uh, read your book and um, really enjoy it. Um, I'm a, a bit of a, a quandary, though. Um, I was hoping maybe you could help me out with this. Um, I'm uh, in with a, an AA group. I, I work in treatment and I'm in with mm -hmm. an AA. I've uh, taken a, a contract where I told them I would take somebody through the steps exactly their way, but morally I'm having a really tough time doing that because I don't want to take somebody through the steps exactly their way. I think it's um, really rigid and um, not particularly thoughtful. It's, the it's way of the treatment, the way of the treatment center. No, this is the way of the group that I've oh, allied, okay. that I, I found myself in. Okay. I just took a sponsor because he's my uh, a good friend, and um, you know I fell into this group, and they're like, "Here, sign this contract." And it's like, "Well, I oh. I don't want to renege on a contract, but it's like <laughs> I I do want to take somebody through the twelve steps." Um, so I'm just kind of like, well, how do I a back out? And maybe is there a uh, a Buddhist twelve step <laughs> meeting I can fall into? Is there a, a network that exists for that? Yeah. Well, there's there's something called recovery dharma. Are you familiar with that? I'm on the board. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see, yeah. but but right, but of course that's not a twelve step program right uh so it's like well i i, I want to be true to my word and you know tell this guy that yes I'll, I'll see somebody through the steps maybe not in your exact way but somebody through the steps so so yeah so i mean i don't have an answer for you philip i mean you got yourself into this problem so don't expect me to get you out but anyway <laughs> what is what is your experience with the 12 steps did you have you worked the steps yourself and yes. and then and then you, but then you kind of got like oh i wanted I'd rather work like through a Buddhist lens with my recovery. Is that yeah? I I've process? always been more more comfortable with uh, Buddhist and with smart recovery, but uh, because I'm working in treatment, I'm like I really want to know the twelve steps intimately. Yeah, I know those you know up one side and down the other, but you know just you know, made made a promise. Um, you know, I don't want to back out on that, but I can't think of another way to to do this and to sort of, you know, well, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, my, you know, my thought is that you, you know, that you present the idea that there isn't one way to understand the steps because the steps tell you that. Step three and step 11 specifically tell you that you don't have to believe in a particular form of God. And mm -hmm. that, you know, that to me opens up the whole idea. Because if, 
you know, if God is a kind of a, some core principle in the steps, and yet the 12-step, you know, tradition or 12-step literature doesn't define God, then it seems to me that that, that means the steps can really be viewed in different ways. And and so the way I look at it, I mean, not to try to sell my books, but <laughs> I have a workbook. And one of the things that I did in that, each it's each step I, it starts out with a section called, what is this step about? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get at the principle or sort of the, you know, the process so taking it out of the original language, not worrying about the original language, just saying, what is the process that these steps are trying to describe? Because if you think that, well, what step four is about is writing down a list of your resentments and da, 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 and these columns or something. Well, that doesn't tell you, you know, that's not really a process. That's just a mechanical th- system. It's not really a process. So understanding what this, what's happening at each of the steps. I mean, step seven, I think, is the best example of this. We humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I mean, who believes that by saying, God, please remove my shortcomings, are our shortcomings are removed. Nobody believes that and except somebody who's deluded, you know. And so so you can say to somebody, well, this is, you know, spiritual language. It's metaphorical language. What it means is you have to let go. You have to, you know, you have to see what needs to change, and then you have to take the steps to change it. I think, I think maybe I'm just going to have to... Uh and I admit this is a fairly toxic organi- uh, group I've, I've wound up with. It's, Sounds like it could be, yeah. If, if you've ever seen that series, The Mandalorian, this is the way. That's what these these guys are like. And, you know, and, and the questioning, you know, it's like I don't, I, I got in a lot of trouble for asking questions about step four. You know, I got really kind of basically shouted down. Yeah, well then. And this is just something I need to distance myself from and I think it's, I think that's so more than okay. You know, the fact that you got yourself into it, you know, with good intentions, and then you realize, oh, I don't belong here. There's no shame in that. And there's no shame in saying, you know, thank you guys. I, I don't think I'm a good fit here. And I, I hope you all are, I leave you all, you know, with whatever, no hard feelings, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hear you, man. I mean, that's, that's tough. I, uh, oof. I know there are these 12-step fundamentalists who um, just get locked into these belief systems. And, you know, if that keeps them sober and they're happy, I'm not here to judge them. Although I am judging them, but anyway, that's not. I, I don't. I don't want to change their organization from the yeah. inside or anything like that. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, take care of yourself. <laughs> I mean, you can't help somebody else. You know, in a system that you don't believe in, that's just not going to work. You know, mm. and you just be. You know, then you're then you're causing problems for yourself and for him. He'll be better off 
in, with a sponsor who believes in that system, if if that's what he wants. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Thank you. I'll stop dominating this uh, <laughs> well, um, yeah. conversation. But I appreciate you, you know, uh, you know. Yeah, it's real nice to meet you, Phil. Good to meet you. All right, man. And I hope everything is good on the board, by the way. Julie, hello. We are <laughs> yeah, it's it's popular, boy, that's for sure. Julie, how are you doing tonight? I'm I'm okay. Thank you so much. What a beautiful, beautiful and timely offering as always. Um so I have been uh for the last several weeks, I've been having some, you know, significant health challenges. Oh, sorry. And uh thank you. And uh one of the upsides is that my um in my condition my cravings and my appetite have really loosened and, and i'm a food addict so i'm really happy about that <laughs> and what i'm what i'm trying to do is be really clear that oh this is the feeling of not craving like, this is the feeling of not battling. Isn't this wonderful? Of course you would choose this over suffering. Of course you would choose this path over giving into your cravings because you have peace. Oh my goodness, of course. And then I start to feel a little bit better and the cravings come back. And I'm remembering intellectually and in my body somatically a little bit. No, remember that place of choosing non-battle. Remember that place of peace, of non-battle, not giving into your cravings. Remember that place. But it is so much easier when you don't have the cravings to begin with. Like, I don't crave alcohol. So it's really easy to make that choice not to drink alcohol. But when my appetite returns and my cravings return, it is really challenging knowing what I know, what I've gone through this last month, knowing what I know, it's still so hard to make the choice that says, choose your values, live in integrity, choose Dharma, choose the path of non-suffering choose non-clean that is the nature of recovery the whole idea of recovery is when you feel that discomfort that craving that aversion whatever you make another you make a skillful choice and so i know all that it's all fresh it's all here and i and it's i think there is a part of me that is aware that i'm afraid to get well because uh-huh. I don't want the cravings. I've taken off some weight. I don't want to gain it back. And I am, if I keep in this place, then there's a piece of me that feels safer than being well and having to make that choice. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Julie. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you know, you're certainly pointing to one of the, essential challenges that and i don't have the solution to that i mean i i 
I'm somewhat of of the opinion, and this is just a, an opinion and my my sense of it, that when we when the once the craving has arisen, it's almost too late. It can be too late, and that the a lot of our work is to create the causes and conditions in our lives that the really full blown cravings do not arise because it's really tough to go, Oh yeah, I've got this craving. I'll just not do it. It's like, Oh, you know, so a lot of the way I view my own program is like the self care that results in craving not arising. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I often talk with people about triggers and getting really clear about what is the process, what what happens before the craving, you know, what's the typical things, you know, fatigue, anger, you know, certain relationships. Um, I had one student who... Um, he didn't drink at home and he didn't drink at work. But on his way home from work, he would get like, oh, instead of going home, he would go to the bar. <laughs> and it was like, so, I mean, I, I don't know. Certainly, I don't think, I know that my advice solved that. But what I pointed to is, well, then there's this critical like half hour in in your day that you, that you need to be really aware of like before you get in the car. How am I going to get home? You know, how am I going to not stop? You know, the, I'm okay. I'm not going to drink at work. If I get home with my wife, I'll have dinner. I'll be fine. I don't do that. So I need to get home, you know, so I need to like be really attentive during that drive. And and I mean, it's very, it's almost like a metaphor for the whole, you know, problem of, of, uh, of triggers. It's like, oh, it's finding. So identifying those triggers when it's, I mean, it, it seemed like simple in a way, but I know it wasn't for, I know it wasn't. And, and for anybody, it's not. It's not so simple because a lot of the triggers can be very natural things like when you get tired and it's like, well, you, everybody gets tired every day or when you get hungry, everybody gets hungry every day. So it's not like you can, oh, I won't get hungry or, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's not like I can stop those things from happening. So I need to really be attentive in those moments when I know I'm at risk, uh, you know, but it's, it's hard. I mean, this is why it's, uh, particularly particularly around food um you know it's different as we know as you as you said it's different from alcohol but um so you know at least harm reduction is the next is the next thing you know to not um to not let things spiral out of control but so um i did want to you know, I mention again what um, Ileana mentioned this earlier 
then we put it in the chat um, that I, I'm starting a an eight-week class series on Tuesday. And um, there's a link in the chat. And, and I've been working on putting this course together, which is kind of interesting because, you know, I've been teaching this stuff for 20 years. And and one of the people who signed up was like regular with me was like, well, are we just going to do the same thing you're always doing? I was like, OK, that's a good challenge. So um, and then someone else was like, well, I don't want to you shouldn't use up like half an hour of the class on meditating. And I was like, OK, then we'll have a I'm, I'm going to open. But then someone else was like, yeah, but I want to meditate. And I was like, OK, so <laughs> this is one of the problems with having, you know, having to listen to other people. But it, it, it those all led me to some, you know, efforts to have created solutions. So I'm actually the class is actually going to the, the Zoom room opens 30 minutes early for people who want to meditate. And um, and I'm going to give meditation instructions for, you know, because I know some people come to these classes, like particularly because they want to learn more about meditation. So I'll have 30 minutes on that. And then then there'll be just a kind of uh, quick settling in. And then I'm going to give, yeah, some of the some of the key kind of typical things about Buddhism in that each step. Uh, and then we're going to have breakout rooms which will be an opportunity for people to, you know, work together and, and connect. And then, I, then uh, I'm going to also bring in for the, some of the Buddhist suttas, some of the early teachings, which is to responding to the, are we going to do the same thing we always do? So that'll be something new and, and more Dharma, more strictly Dharma. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to it. It's been uh, really interesting to to kind of work on putting this together, to put a curriculum together that that I'm hoping will be uh, beneficial for people. So, and you know, I'm I'm asking for a sliding scale, but um, no one's turned away for lack of funds. So, if you can pay on the scale, that's great. If not, you you know, you pay what you can. So I, I wanted to pitch that a little bit because. Uh, because people who show up for this class uh, tends to be somewhat a different community from my other um, my other uh, Zoom classes that, by the way, <laughs> happen every Tuesday morning and uh, and other Friday evenings. So um, I don't see any other virtual hands. Uh, I don't see anything in the chats. And I, I, I am wouldn't mind um, just closing with a little bit of um, meta, a little sharing the merit and loving kindness. I, I will say, just I did not mention this, but uh, this is my anniversary week. So Wednesday, I uh, reached the. 38 years of uh, sobriety. So thank you. Yes. <laughs> and I found out that Ileana is actually was not alive when I got sober. So that's so maybe true of some of others out there. Uh, now I see a hand up from Arian. Did you want to say something? Hi, Arian. 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 Hi,
you can, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I don't see the link in the chat to your class uh, that you mentioned. Oh, okay. Um, I'll put it in there again. It thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, some, I think if if you join after something was put in, then did oh Ileana just put it in again for me. Thank you. Do you see it now? I hope. All right. Just um, yeah. Just let's uh, sit back for a moment. Uh, One of the things I like to just notice is at the end of a teaching or the end of a a meditation, how am I feeling? Because um, I want to reinforce the idea that doing this makes me feel good. (laughs) So just notice how you're feeling right now. I, I hope you're feeling good. And so uh, when we practice in this way and we see the benefits that come from practicing mindfulness and loving kindness, can motivate us to, to want to share that. And certainly that's something we can do in very practical ways. But there is also this tradition of what's called sharing the merit. The idea that when we gather to study and practice Dharma together, that some merit, some karmic benefit is developed that instead of sort of keeping that for ourselves that we sense that we are sharing it spreading it around the buddha said that people who are spiritually evolved who are enlightened that that their insight and enlightenment is of benefit to all beings. Said that he, he and his followers practice out of compassion for the world. So in that spirit, we dedicate the merit of our practice tonight to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from the scourge of addiction. May all beings be free from suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.